Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 22. Do you want to distribute your Python applications to other users who don't have or even use Python? Maybe you're interested in seeing your Python application run on iOS or Android mobile devices. This week on the show, we have Russell Keith McGee, the founder and maintainer of the Beware Project. Russell talks about Briefcase, a tool that converts a Python application into native installers on macOS, Windows, Linux, and mobile devices. We spent some time digging into Beware's cross-platform widget toolkit named Toga. Russell talks about some of the intricacies of converting graphical user interface components from across multiple computing platforms. If you're interested in contributing to an open source project, he also talks about how you could get involved in the project. And we also talk about the struggle of getting funding for open source projects. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Russell. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I was wondering if we could just go ahead and start with a little bit of a history of the project of Beware itself. Yeah, okay. So there's this sort of an interesting two channels that sort of converged. About five or six years ago, I was just kind of tinkering in my spare time and I had this vague theory that I wanted, basically I wanted to build a debugger. I, I learned the program back in the 80s on Turbo Pascal, which had really like a really good like 80 by, 80 by 25 text mode, but a really good debugger. And then I moved into the Linux, Unix world, and you ended up with GDB and PDB, which are very, very good debuggers, but don't have a user interface on them at all. Like that, that sort of entry mode user interfaces or a text mode user interface is really hard to use. And so I had this theory that, okay, we've got this, I've got this wonderful 4K laptop with, you know, high resolution and everything. I should be able to use modern graphical tools and build a thing that is just a debugger that I can use to debug Python and be able to, you know, do it, get a good debugging experience, but without having to swallow the entire IDE experience, you know, buying a, or getting into a full PyCharm or, or a, a VS Code or something like that. That sounds cool. So this would, it would like run as a, a separate kind of tool next to like what you'd be coding. Yeah, in. exactly. So you, you have your editor. The editor is for editing code. The debugger is for debugging code. The test coverage tool is for looking at your test coverage. You know, standalone tools, do one thing, do it well. It's sort of the classic Unix philosophy kind of idea. But not Unix philosophy in the sense that and everything has to be done in the terminal. Let's use the fact that I've got this incredibly powerful graphical workstation to visualize things, you know, see lines of code as I step through them, but do it at the, but it only does debugging. It just is, it's just a debugger. Cool. And then step one of that is, okay, I need a graphical toolkit to do that. I tried doing it with TK Enter and it just sort of started hitting so many barriers with it. And I, I basically, at the time, I could never find a graphical toolkit that I could just pip install and have it be native, and have it work everywhere. At the same time, I was actually had a, had a startup at the time. It was a, you know, a Django web startup thing, and we got to the point where we needed to have a, a mobile app to support it. We needed like, people in the field to gather data in the field, take photographs, check, go through checkbox, tick lists, that sort of thing. Okay. And you know, I have got this incredible Django Python code base, 
how do I use that on a mobile platform? And I basically, there wasn't an answer that was viable. I had to poke around, eventually ended up using uh, PhoneGap, which is sort of a JavaScript framework, and basically regretted it from day one. I just just hated everything about working with it. (laughs) And so there has to be a better way, if only just because I want to reuse all this Python logic that I've got on the server on, on mobile. And so the two sort of came together. Like on the one hand, I, I need a graphical toolkit that works cross-platform. And there's a, there's a gap here that there's no Python GUI toolkit that works on mobile. Okay, maybe this is the reason why another GUI toolkit is the way forward. Maybe this is this is the thing. And a, a bunch of tinkering and whatnot that came around, I was playing around with. Can How hard is it to write to native APIs directly from Python? Turns out it's actually a lot simpler than I thought it was. So, you know, how hard could it be? The classic first new project (laughs) mistake sure started building a widget toolkit and that kind of expanded and expanded into this sort of let's let's see where python can be can we use python for for front-end tools which is essentially what the beware like there's the one of the confusions we have is that beware is an umbrella project you don't install beware yeah you install koga and briefcase and all these other little pieces beware is this big project umbrella project of little tools that all do one thing really well much like the idea of this debugger that is just for debugging and a coverage tool that is just for coverage. Yeah, I just had a conversation with Armin Ronacher for about Flask and you know all his uh, palettes projects and how they all kind of fit together in kind of a similar way, which I think is a really kind of good approach <laughs> for this kind of thing. You know, to be able to have I, I, you can tell me this, but as far as development, if that if that's helpful, uh, to have it sort of separated somewhat. Yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely complications. I won't lie that there are complications. Like, even just from the perspective of people turn up in our chat room and say, I've just installed Beware and I'm getting a bug. It's like, well, no, you didn't install Beware. You installed Briefcase <laughs> or Togo or one of these other things. So can you narrow that down? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, someone reports a bug and they report the bug against Briefcase. And no, it's not actually a Briefcase problem. It's a Togo problem. So you've got to migrate the issue over. And, you know, there's a, that sort of complication definitely exists. But, it does also mean that you can bring someone in and they can become an expert on packaging. Or like, how am I going to put this application and wrap it up so that I can distribute it? And they know nothing about how GUI frameworks work. They only know how the packaging tool works. So it, it does focus attention on what is this tool, what is this piece of the puzzle trying to do and solving that problem really well. And if possible, and what we've been trying to do with the Beware tools, is not just solve it for Beware's purposes, but solve it for everyone's purposes. So, for example, Briefcase, our packaging tool, Briefcase can package other apps. It can package QT apps. It can package TK Inter apps. It can package, uh, I think we've seen an example of someone packaging a Kivi app with it. So it is not a Beware-specific tool for packaging. It is a Python packaging tool that happens to be under the Beware uh, umbrella. It does work really well with Toga, which is Beware's GUI toolkit, right. but it's not specific to Beware. Okay. One of the things that you were uh, mentioning in the site also is the idea of hopefully getting maybe gaming going. And uh, I, I noticed the Pursued Pi Bear as one of the platforms that maybe you've been talking with on on some of that. Yeah, no, I've uh, been, been speaking with uh, Piper and the, and the team there, and they've, they've, they contributed a patch recently to to support, like, essentially add Pursue Pipe Air as part of this, as a kick, as a one of the initial templates. Interestingly, though, that actually required absolutely no changes to Briefcase itself. Oh, wow. Briefcase as a packaging tool just says, okay, tell me what your dependencies are, what are your Python dependencies, and I'll wrap them up into a package that runs. The only sort of ma- uh, manifestation of, of Pursued PyBear in Briefcase is the sort of the wizard starting off in the first place 
pursued pi bear is there as an option and it, you know, it there's some stub code to say this is what a stub pursued pi bear project would look like okay and so beyond that it's just and then you install pursued pi bear and your application is packaged so yeah the we're we're, we're hoping to be able to support any you know, asterisk any framework and, and game frameworks are amongst that because piper again just recently submitted a um a game to I think it was Let 'em Dar, Let 'em Dar, whatever that the game game jam contest contest is, and like this is one of the first times that I'm aware of that, or they were they were aware of, where a Python game is in one of these competitions with a you know Windows installer that just runs. Nice. You don't have to go and tell people how to build a virtual environment so that they can install your game and run it. You just give them an NSI file and they run it. Which is, I think, is the real benefit of something like that. You know, here is it is one of these big unsolved problems with Python: is how do I give my code to someone else so that they can use it when they don't care about the fact that it's written in Python? Yeah, that, I think that's one of the things that is most interesting to me about it. And when I I went through the tutorial uh, this week, trying to get you know familiar with the tools, and you know, I've done a little bit of iOS development, a little bit of Mac development, just kind of playing around. And a lot of the the commands at the very end felt very much like the the kind of commands of you know build and the those kinds of things where you're creating the actual uh, installer, which is really kind of neat and and feels different from say some of these other Python packaging tools, whatever you want to call them, that that try to uh, put all the resources together. What what is your experience with? And what what are you trying to do that's maybe a little unique there? The the sort of throwaway line that I like to use is that briefcase is the dumbest thing that could possibly work. Uh, we are very deliberately not trying to be clever in anything that we do. A macOS app, for those who don't know, a macOS app is actually not anything particularly special. It is a directory structure that is in a known, like it's got to have a couple of subdirectories and a metadata file at a known location and an entry point that can, that is executable. It is not a fancy binary structure. It is just a directory of stuff that can run that is self-contained. Yeah. And so all, like in the case of like macOS packaging, all Briefcase is doing is templating that directory. It is literally a cookie cutter of a directory structure that says, and when you install things, install them in this folder. And, you know, puts the metadata in various places and puts the, you know, icon files where the icon needs to be. So it is very deliberately not trying to be clever and wrap things up into a single single archive or anything like that. It is just being as dumb as it can, what is the easiest way to get a working Python interpreter running Python the way that Python basically wants to run, which is you know a directory with a site packages and a lib and a bin directory, give that to someone else such that it will just work for them. Right. Uh, on other platforms, it does similar things. So like on, on Windows, we, we ship a directory that is the Windows, like the, the official CPython embedded installer with some you know entry level entry scripts and an MSI wrapper that goes and sticks it in your start menu. And most of the complication is around how do I get it in the start menu such that it will start the thing in the in the right location. On on Linux, we, we do use a format, well at the moment we use a format called App Image. There are like Snap and Snap and um Flatpak we want to we want to look at as well. But uh, App Image is a format for wrapping up essentially a, a disk image. Like it, it is a mountable image that just happens to know how to execute itself. Inside that disk image, it is a completely standard CPython installation running the way CPython is meant to run. So the whole briefcase packaging story is just get a Python interpreter onto this person's machine without them having to ever go and download Python. 
Yes, that does mean that there is some wasted space because you've actually got to, like, every application has an embedded Python install, but it means that every every application is self-contained. Yeah. So in the end, what the you know after you've created this build, you have this distributable. In the case of the Mac version, it's a .dmg disk image, right? That when you double click it or whatever, it basically mounts to your desktop, and you end up with this typical pattern they have of like drag this icon to your applications and everything's kind of uh, structured underneath that which is really neat and i'm guessing it's a little similar in the windows that that i'm not sure what the acronym of msi is if it's microsoft installer or something yeah i think it's at microsoft installer but i'm not sure about that one myself sure and then uh in that case it's it's having to maybe put other resources or is it pretty self-contained is it going to go into like a single folder on on the microsoft side uh, it ends up being a single folder in your applications directory that contains you know here is a folder with your applications python code here is a folder with your applications python dependencies here is a folder with a python interpreter and that's it nice like there is there, the rest of it is like it's, there is a metadata file that gets loaded into your like into your registry to, to to actually do the start menu entry which says and this is how you start it but that's that is it. Like it, it, we are not trying to do anything clever about packaging and executable or wrap it up or anything. Not to say that we don't necessarily want to. Like one of the big wish list items that we've got is to be able to do a genuine single exe installer. But a lot of the other packaging tools that are out there are, are, are taking that approach, and they never. Like my experience has been that they never quite work. They they involve playing silly games with the python importer part for example because you don't have 15 files or you know 100 files in in a site packages folder that you can just open it goes and packages all of that into a single archive and then tricks the python interpreter into how it thinks it's opening a file but it's actually just going to an offset inside that bundle which can work except when it doesn't yeah and like that's the whole game that was being played with. You know, if, you've, if you've ever if you've ever done uh, uh, built a Python package, there's an option in distutils for zip safe, and that's essentially that. You know, can this thing run inside a zip? Do I actually rely upon this Python file being a Python file? And a disturbing amount of code out there in the ecosystem actually does. They they need to be files on disk in a folder the way that it normally runs. Or else it just doesn't work, uh, and that's getting aside from you. Know, like when you've got binary modules and whatnot, how you wrap those binary modules up in such a way. That- so one of the things I was thinking about that that caused problems for what I was trying to do in like an office environment. I was trying to share. You know, I was working on a Windows platform, and I was trying to use. Uh, I think it was PyInstaller, one of one of the other tools that's out there. We don't have to particularly call out names, but it was very picky as far as the environment. You know, this was a sixty four bit machine that I was working on. But if I wanted to distribute it to a machine that was 32 bit, it it wouldn't work. Like I had to, you know, have a virtual machine or some you know machine that that was in that same exact architecture, if you will, to to go. Is is that a similar problem that you would have in creating something with a briefcase? Uh, that that absolutely yes yes that problem would still exist. I mean, like the briefcase doesn't magically solve any architecture problems. Like if you if you go to the C Python page to download your installer, there are at least two installers: one for thirty two bit and one for sixty four bit. And I think the thirty two bit one will run on sixty four bit, but I won't stand by that one. Right. So you know, it doesn't resolve architecture differences. It won't make make an executable work on a different architecture. 
But it will make it really easy to say, okay, now here's my 32-bit installer and here's my 64-bit installer because they are two different installers. There are two different two different sources you can use. So yeah, I, and Pi installer. I, I again, I don't don't want to pick on Pi installer specifically, but I, like they they are going to have the same problem, right? Because you you actually do have to worry about about those architecture things. And it, I think in, probably in their case, probably it gets even worse because the, all the games about trying to open up files in specific locations is going to be. Now, even more critical because you're trying to do offsets into a 64-bit binary versus a 32-bit binary. But, you know, the executable is the first step, and if that doesn't work, then it's a, a moot point anyway. Okay. So that would be one of the things you got to think about in general. What's your target, right? <laughs> yeah. What are you setting up for? And so uh, it's somewhat mellowing out on the Mac platform, though, I guess. with It's about to get a whole lot more interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was going to ask you, like, to take a divergence into ARM stuff. The interesting thing is that Mac, this is like the fourth time Mac has changed its hardware architecture. Right. So there is a well-established path for how this works. And interestingly, the C Python source code actually still has hangovers from the last architecture change from like moving from PowerPC to Intel. Mac's toolchain is already very, very much multiple architecture aware. And you actually see this on iOS because every time you build an iOS binary, if you're doing a fully compliant binary today, you're actually compiling it four times. You compile it for x86 32-bit, x86 64-bit, ARM v7, and ARM64. And all four binaries coexist in what's called a fat binary. So you, know, you look into it as like an architecture, like in this in this single binary, there are four different sets of offsets depending upon what architecture you need. The like the the, the Mac compiler toolchain knows how to deal with that and knows how to compile something twice and stick it into an executable. So it's I don't want to say it's a solved problem because it isn't by a long shot, but the, it is something that is the Mac ecosystem is well aware of how to make this work. Okay. So yeah, so the legwork is is being done. Being done is partially done. It's certainly not a solved problem from the perspective of a briefcase. Yeah. But I have a reasonable degree of confidence that it won't be too difficult when we get there. Did you try to get yourself a development kit? I, I did, <laughs> but I'm I'm not quite that important. <laughs> Plus I also the, you know, they're not cheap, so uh Yeah, no. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's you know, depends on who's the priority of chains and so forth and and so forth yeah so yeah so one of the things that you are using as a tool throughout this process is this uh .toml file and i haven't i haven't done a lot with them i've done a little bit with docker and i keep seeing more of these toml files and i just kind of wanted to maybe have you explain a little bit about them if you don't mind just to yeah sure kind of make, make people familiar with what they are and how they're helping with the development right i guess the Toml is a relatively, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's, it, it is ironic that having developed YAML, yet another markup language, it has since been superseded by yet another, yet another markup language, which is Toml, yeah. which is Tom's own markup language, Tom uh, Preston Warner from GitHub fame. Oh, okay. It is designed to be, uh, like effectively, the, the issue that exists is that there, is, there are CFG files, which are very, very easy to read. But there actually isn't a formal specification for them that is universally agreed upon and is also rich when it comes to things like dictionaries and lists and all those kind of rich data structures. And when you get to moderately complex configuration, you need those rich data structures. You need you need to have 
the ability to do like key value mapping and lists of items and a very clear understanding of what is a string and what is an what is the escape character to get you into a string and how do you put that character inside a string and all those little little details. Python specifically has gone to Tommel for one or well, sorry two peps, pep five seventeen and pep five eighteen, which is around the packaging metadata. Cast your mind back 20 odd years, we introduced, or Python introduced distutils, which was this is how you build a Python package. But it was assumed that you would always be using setup tools and we'd always be using distutils to build your Python package. Since then, there have been new tools that have come out that are alternate ways of building those packages. But you still have to have setup tools and distutils installed to tell the installer which. which uh, packaging tool you're actually using. So there's kind of this issue of the setup.py file is executable code, which means it has a library dependency, which means that you need to run something to find out that, no, you're not going to use setup tools to install your package. And so PEP 5.17 and PEP 5.18 are about defining the metadata of what packaging or how do I build this package? What tool do I need to have to be able to build this package? And that needs to be not executable, so it needs to be in a markup format, at which point the question is then, well, what markup format are we going to use? And they, they did a survey. If you go look at the PEP, they actually do a full rundown of, do we want to use JSON? Do we want to use YAML? Do we want to use raw configuration files? Or do we want to use TOML? And of the options that are available, TOML is probably the best, like it is the best option out of those set because JSON has all like JSON doesn't have comments. You can't use comments in a JSON file, and comments are really useful in configuration items. Yeah, YAML is eclectic and has some very interesting failure modes and all sorts of weird ex- executable exploits and whatnot that are in there. Raw configuration files, no one can agree what the format of a, of a CFG file actually is, and so you're left with TOML is very easy to read, very easy to parse, and also gives you the full richness of key value stores and lists and and clear uh, string definitions and, and what have you. So it is, yes, it is yet another format, <laughs> yeah. but it is quite a clear form. Like I, I, it is very easy to ingest mentally in terms of what is there. And it is very rich in terms of what you can do with it. And yet the parser is actually not that complicated. Like it, it is, it is a, it is a very, very small parsing package to get the ability to parse Tommel. It's not a, a an incredibly complex parser to write. Cool. And so the reason, like, Beware didn't specifically say we're going to use Tommel. What Beware did was say, okay, there is this new packaging format. We're going to use PyProject.Tommel, uh, Pi which is the, you know, the, the PEP 517 format, and we're just going to integrate with that ecosystem. You mentioned it in your PyCon talk and kind of referenced uh, Brett Cannon. He has, like, a blog post about it. Like, what the heck is... Pi Pi Project Tommel, if I can say the words. Yeah. And then I'll definitely include links to, you know, Pep 517 and 518 in that that blog post, you know, along with your snakes in a case. (laughs) Yeah. Your PyCon talk. But uh, it just kind of intrigued me. As you said, there's been lots of of ways to kind of think about packaging. So it, it kind of sounds nice that from a top down sense that there's some decisions, you know, being thought about like, you know, okay, this, this is important, especially for projects like yours, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the, 
it, the, the pushback that is existing, like that, that at least that I'm seeing anyway, is mostly around misunderstanding what it is that it's trying to do. Like we have had setup.py forever. We setup.cfg is just sort of starting to emerge, and all of a sudden we've got pyproject.toml. And are we supposed to be putting our you know uh, flake eight configurations in our setup.cfg or our pyproject.toml? And you know, it's sort of it's it's a little bit more churn than would be nice to have from a community perspective. Right. But this time it is actually being thought about from first principles and we've got a format that is rich enough, allows metadata to be specified in a format that is rich enough and services all the other needs of, I don't want to use setup tools at all, but I know that this pyproject.toml exists and I can say what I'm using instead of setup setup tools. Okay. In using the tools for briefcase and kind of you know doing that initial setup it it's, does a lot of it for you it helps you kind of construct a lot of that uh toml file right well it does from the perspective of briefcase like we're not actually putting anything in that metadata file that isn't briefcase specific and that's partially because the the packaging story for something like briefcase is fundamentally different to the packaging story for something like like take setup tools as as the analog setup tools is is primarily for defining a package that you're going to upload onto pypi that someone else is going to install into their project okay as a dependency, no, requests, for example, has a setup.py, setup.cfg. They publish a new version of requests. It goes up to PyPI, and I pull it down into my project. Briefcase is about packaging applications. And it's sort of, in some regards, it's a bit like the, the distinction that has historically been made between do you put things in setup.py in your install requires or do you put it in requirements.txt? Requirements.txt is about your deployments requirements. Now, I'm deploying my website, my requirements go in my requirements.txt file because you don't put publish your website's configuration to PyPI. It is about describing a deployment of your code. Whereas setup.py and install requires is about saying, I'm building a library. This is what this library needs. Yeah, okay. Briefcase is a lot more about the deployment story. It's a lot, a lot closer to I'm deploying a website than it is to I'm deploying a package to PyPI. You're saying, I've got this app. This app is my you know cool new game, my new word processor, whatever app it is that you're writing. That app, in order to run, must have these five libraries in these five versions, and you can bundle it all up and ship it off somewhere. And you get you know, a, a, a bundle that can be executed and used in the same way that your, your web server can deploy and run your code. That is a different set of problems to what distutils and setup tools and, and sort of that sort of ecosystem of stuff is trying to solve. So briefcase does generate a pyproject.toml in order to be part of that ecosystem and agree that, you know, this is where your metadata for how your project is being built sits, but it is not trying to build the project that is going to go to PyPI because your app won't ever be uploaded to PyPI. It'll be uploaded to an app store or to, you know, to, to an S3 bucket so it can be downloaded by someone or something like that. Yeah. I guess that kind of like leads us into how the project's going as far as the different platforms. I was able to, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, just kind of playing around with it, create, you know, a Mac app that is an installable, a DMG. I didn't go through the extra steps of the signing process, which I guess is a whole other conversation, which we don't necessarily need to get into, but is important if you're going to put it in a store. And then we talked about the Windows platform and briefly about uh, Linux, but the idea of the project is also to be able to be on mobile devices, correct? 
That is correct, yeah. So how's that going? Uh, really well. We were very, very lucky to be the recipient of a grant from the Python Software Foundation a little under a year ago now. We got that we got that grant to essentially to fund us to rebuild our Android backend. Like we had Android support about three years ago in a experimental form using a particularly weird like uh, an, an eccentric approach that worked really well, but was just not, well, sorry, it worked It worked well and I think still has legs, but didn't work well enough for me to honestly say, no, no, really, you can build an app with it. Okay. We said we used to do a, a compilation process of taking Python bytecode and turning it into Java bytecode directly. Hmm. Uh, and that compiler, I think is still, like that approach, I think is still well worth looking looking into, but it's kind of a, you need to reproduce the whole of the Python standard library. And that's a big job. And you need to reproduce everything that's a C Python module, wow. like all of the internals of NumPy. You need to reproduce that. And that is a big job. Yeah. So what we've done is kind of gone back to first principles, gone back to scratch and um, taken, we now basically, the approach that, taken, that we take on iOS is now very similar to the approach we take on Android, which is to say, we take the C Python source code, the way, like the, the stock C Python source code, and just compile it with a C compiler for that platform. We compile it for iOS, we compile it for Android. Uh, and then we treat it as an embedded Python install, as an embedded an embedded library that you just throw some application code at and it runs. And then there is a bridging process that you need to bridge from your Python code to the system native libraries, but we can bridge from Python to Objective-C and from Python to Java to go and you know put your buttons on the screen or whatever whatever widget you want to you want to interact with. Uh, and so that's that's the approach that we are now taking and as of about two or three weeks ago we we formally said no okay we are now saying we actually do support android and it's been uh, 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 ashish laroya has been working on that as as actually paid open source work for about the last 6 months we finally got that rolled out into briefcase so you can now run the briefcase tutorial on macos linux windows ios and android take a hello world application with a you know input and a dialog box that pops up and does some math drop that code in, run it five different times and have five different binaries come out. And it's to the point of actually going beyond like a simulator and being on the hardware too, right? It is on the physically on hardware. It is in the app store. So if you go to either the iOS app store or the Android you know, Google Play store, uh, you can search for an app called Travel Tips. And there is there is an app there. It is 100% written in Python. You can download it. You wouldn't ever know it was written in Python. You know, there's nothing there that says you've got to start a Python interpreter or, or you know, install a virtual environment on your phone or anything. It is it is an app that looks like every other app. It presents exactly the same as every other app. It just happens to be internally. It's written in Python, and the source code is up on uh, up on GitHub if you want to see what it looks like. Cool. Are there lots of? I, I didn't go through. I, you know, went to the steps of on the iOS side to run it on a simulator. And was able to get, you know, the basic kind of interaction and, you know, typing in the window and, and so forth. What are the extra steps of like pushing it to to device from there? Is that something that has to happen through Xcode at that point? Uh, for iOS at the moment, yes, you do need to be in Xcode, but it's essentially open the project and plug your phone in and press the play button. You you do like if you actually want to you, you do need to like set up your developer profile with Apple, with the Apple developer program and stuff like that, because there's a whole bunch of signing stuff that needs to go on. But it is mostly sign up, configure Xcode correctly in the project, select that you want it to be deployed with your developer profile and hit play. Wow. 
Cool. Once that has been set up once, it is essentially one pull-down box and go. That is something we we probably can optimize. It's mostly just having someone to sit down and like work out how to rewrite the the project file and invoke it or run the project file with a particular set of overrides uh, at runtime. It's you know just the at the moment it is a slightly manual process. It could be automated. I believe it can be automated. We've just got to have someone with the spare time to sit down and work out the the, the fine details on that. On Android, we can we can essentially almost completely automate the process. Like you plug your Android phone in, you start to run, and physical devices and simulated devices devices look exactly the same from the perspective of Android. Nice. Or from the perspective of beef briefcase, anyway. And yeah, you play like you have to. There's a really weird dance you've got to do with the Android physical device. Like you've got to go into the settings and select the uh, the operating system version and press it seven times and then click an, an an accept button, which puts your phone into developer mode. But once that's done, it it can accept binaries that come in via uh, over the wire. It's like some kind of Konami code kind of thing. Yeah, it really is like a Konami code thing. It's like you go in there and you press press the the version but the the uh, Android version seven times, but it works. So you know, <laughs> that's cool. And this is kind of an aside and and not necessarily like an advertising thing. But I wonder, I've wondered about getting for development purposes some kind of like base level Android device. And I think about a phone, but I don't really need another you know phone for communication devices but those would be common and then i think about like tablets and i I just don't know if you would have advice is like like do you have like one that you use for development or uh to test with so yes i do okay uh and like so the thing that's interesting and this is one of the reasons why the android support lagged for so long uh, is that the like i did the the ios support ios is my daily driver so I, i did that support first but way back in you know four or five years ago. And I got that going and I've had the app running on my phone forever. And that was using that embedded CPython approach. And I tried to do that on Android. And the problem is that Android devices really don't, like have only very, very recently been even remotely comparable to iOS devices in terms of like raw CPU speed. Like I I don't want to hate on Android people who like Android or whatever, but I'm sorry, Android devices are slow compared to iPhones. and it's only very, very recent devices that are even remotely comparable to iOS. And so five years ago, it was unusably bad. Like the the speed of starting up a CPython interpreter on an Android device, it was just implausible. The startup time was not plausible. And on top of that, like the way that you talk from Python or you talk from C code generally to the Java virtual machine is through this, uh, this layer called JNI, the Java native interface. And Four or five years ago, the Android kernel actually had a hard-coded restriction on the number of JNI references that an application could hold open at any given time, and that was basically basically meant that you had to you you had no option. Like it was it wasn't plausible to use JNI. So that was why I went down this other rabbit hole of trying to compile bytecode. Wind the clock forward for four or five years. The situation has gotten a lot better. Android devices are a lot faster, and the JNI restriction has been lifted. So, the jump onto Amazon and find the hundred, two hundred dollar cheap Android phone is a perfectly workable Android phone. Okay. For testing and development purposes, and I do have one. I, I won't drop brand names or anything here, but yeah, go go into your local post office or whatever where they sell the cheap hundred dollar Android phone. Yeah. That's a perfectly fine phone. Okay. 
However, they are still slow. They are really slow. And I like, I'm, I'm not talking they are slightly slow. I'm talking we are, they are really slow compared to an iPhone. The latest generation Nexus, later generation uh, Samsung phones, they are broadly comparable. They're still a lot slower, but they are broadly comparable with an iPhone, like a, a top of the line iPhone. But the cheap phones are a lot slower. So the, 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 the real acid test here is that if I load, load the, the travel tips app onto my iPhone, starts like one second up in there, it's running. If I load it on a really recent my Samsung uh, S20 or whatever, uh, or S10 or whatever the, the latest generation one is, same thing, loads in a, in a second or two. On my test phone, my $100 test phone, it's about a 10-second startup the first time mm. and about a five-second startup the second time, okay. which is not great. Yeah. When it's running, it's okay. It's a little laggy, but it's, but it's okay. But yeah, there is. They are they are slow. They are definitely good enough for test purposes, and if for no other reason than you know, the the golden rule is that a developer should never have a new machine because they should know how bad it is for everybody with a bad machine. <laughs> it's probably not a bad idea for you to have a cheap device because it does point out exactly how bad the experience is for everyone else. But they're perfectly usable for test purposes. Yeah. Okay. That totally makes sense. One of the things I was wondering about this idea of, well, I guess it kind of leads into Toga and the graphical user interface that library that you have there what's involved in that being cross-platform and and having widgets that that can you know be on windows or be on an android device and so forth um it's mostly an issue of trying to find the common ground in terms of what it is you're trying to describe okay like the there is internally toga has essentially three layers there is a public interface layer which is what you act like the api that you see documented that you actually play around with there is an implementation layer, which is how this, how that public idea manifests, like what collection of widgets do you actually need? And then there is the native layer, which is the actual, like the NS button, the UI button, the, 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 the native button that exists. Now, in the case of something like a button, it's pretty straightforward. You have a Toga interface that is a button that can be pressed. And we're going to call the callback when a button is pressed, press. All right. There is an implementation layer that is a button, and there's just one widget. There is just the one button we need to handle, and it needs to be able to, you know, talk to a native layer where there is on iOS, it's a UI button. On uh, Mac, it's an NS button. On Windows, it's a button, but it's a Windows.forms.button. It's an Android.widgets.button. It's a GTK.button. Whatever it's called natively, and that's you just kind of got to connect the button, the connect the the dots together between what you call it publicly. I call it click. This platform calls it press. Yeah. Okay. Whatever, whatever that, that, that connection through is. And then on top of that, one of the things Toga is trying to do is be a Python first framework. So, uh, so the, the metaphors, the, the UI is not just C wrapped in Python. It is like we use attributes the way Python uses attributes. We try to use context managers the way Python uses a context manager. We try to present APIs that are Pythonic in the way they do things, which sometimes means a little bit of tweaking around. On more complex widgets, so things like a scroll uh, scroll pane, for example, a scroll pane on a GTK is just sort of one one widget. You you just find a scroll pane and you put the content in the scroll pane. On 
Mac, it's actually two widgets. There's a container and then there's a scroll bar, and you've got to munge those two together. So you've got to kind of work. That's why that middle layer is there. You've got the public interface that says it's a scroll pane. Internally, well, it's actually a, scro- a scroller and a, and a container, and then that's two native widgets when it gets connected. The the complicated part is really that that last bridge. How do I get from the implementation layer where I know that I need two widgets? How do I actually invoke the system native platform? And on Linux, it's easy because GTK has a native Python binding. On other platforms, you've need to got to, you've got to find that way of how do I bridge from a Python runtime to the native application runtime, and it varies from platform to platform. On iOS and macOS, we use a thing called Rubicon, which is our internal essentially bridging from Python calls to Objective-C calls. So it turns out Objective-C maps really well onto raw C calls, and you can get at those raw C calls with a thing called C-types, which is essentially a being able to invoke any C function from within Python without actually having to compile anything. Okay. Uh, we do a similar trick on, on Android with Java. Like There is a Rubicon for Objective-C and there's a Rubicon for Java that converts a Python call into a Java JNI set of references. Um, and then on Windows, we use, I think we use Python.net, which is a library that essentially does the same thing, but for Windows, uh, it's a little bit more complicated there because there isn't, like, because Windows is C sharp uh, and C++, there is no C types analog, so you can't just... For those. Yeah, there's no common calling convention for C++, so you kind of do have to have a compiled component, but someone else has written that, and we're just using that as as, as, it, as it is. Would you have that same type of experience if say Objective-C gets dropped and you're at the level of having to do things with Swift instead? Uh, I don't know is the is the answer there. Okay. It, it kind of depends. Like the, the thing that's really, really critical is the calling convention. Yeah. We are, C-types enables you to invoke any C function. And C functions have a common a common calling convention for how you get into the binary and construct like just literally bytes on the wire to make a function be invoked. As I understand it, Swift is using a C or C-like calling convention that is known and predictable, in which case you probably can get into F, like just use C types and invoke it. I have not tried, do not know if that is true, so do not hold me to any of that. Sure, no, I understand. But that's kind of the reason why Objective-C and Swift play together so nicely is that they are one binary, but you can get at it in two different ways because the calling convention is the same underneath the hood. Uh, So if Objective-C ever got completely dropped, we'd definitely have to move to something like how do we get that bridge working? I'm closing my eyes, sticking my fingers in my ears and saying, la, 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 it's never going to (laughs) happen. For the moment, at least. So what are the... You know, I know it's always kind of like a moving target, but like, what are the what what are the types of interfaces you can you've created with the the widgets inside of Toga? Like, what what kinds of things could you give as examples that somebody could could design inside of Toga? Sure. Uh, so, like, all all of your basic primitives are there. You can have windows. You've got buttons. You've got sliders. You've got checkboxes. You know, uh, uh, tick boxes. You've got text inputs. Like uh, big tech, uh, uh, single line and multi line text inputs. You've got scroll boxes. You've got tabs. You've got uh, trees lists. Nice. All of your, you sort of the basic primitives are mostly there. They are definitely, there's a lot on macOS. It is most mature in terms of the number of widgets that are there. Most of the widgets are there for GTK and Windows. A, a lot of the widgets are there for iOS and some of the widgets are there for Android. So it's a sort of a work in progress in terms of what's getting there. But sort of the, a good a good analogy is if you ever use TK Inter, if you can build it in TK Inter, you can probably build it in macOS. Or you can probably build it in Togo. And if you can't, the gap is pretty small. 
the one widget that I'm very proud of that we have that that, that uh, TKender doesn't have or doesn't have the same level of maturity is a canvas widget. Uh, so we do have a, a a full just draw vectors on page uh, canvas. Ooh. That by itself, okay, yes, great, you can draw you know draw pretty lines on a screen. The real kicker is that we've actually got it to the point of maturity where it can be used as a Matplotlib backend. So you can use Matplotlib to draw charts natively on a Toga page. So you know you you could literally build a Matplotlib charting widget for whatever you know an app that draws charts in real time by rendering them through Matplotlib directly into Toga if you wanted to. Now that that charting widget is not available on Android at this point, but definitely works on Windows on all the desktop platforms. Oh, that's great. So yeah, the you're not you're not going to get the really advanced animations and really slick custom widgets and all that sort of thing. But in terms of building data gathering, data display apps, absolutely not a, not a problem building any of those. Well, actually, one of the other ones that's in there, and this is kind of one of the reasons why I ended up building or got into Toga in the first place, was that we, we have a web widget. So you can essentially build a web browser in Toga in about 30 lines of code. Yeah, it's not not Firefox, it's not Chrome, but you know, it, is, it is able to display a URL. You put a text bar at the top, you put a go button, you put a, a web pane, and you can connect up a web browser. So yeah, that that is a widget that TKinter doesn't have, for example. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, so like it's it's it is by no means mature. It is version zero point three development. So there are things missing. There are bugs. There are sharp edges. There are things that aren't going to work quite right. But if you if you're willing to be a little bit adventurous and put on some sturdy gloves, you could absolutely build, gather data in the field and post it to a web API kind of app, chart something that's being pulled in from a web API without any difficulty at all. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's about a topic that new students to Python can often find a bit confusing. It's titled Python Decorators 101. The course is based on a real Python article by our first guest on the podcast, Pierre Arn Yella. It's a course created by me, Christopher Bailey, and I take you through how functions are first-class objects in Python, how to return a function from a function, how to create simple decorators, how to use some syntactic sugar when using decorators, how to decorate functions with arguments, and you'll practice creating several real-world examples of decorators, including code for timing your functions, debugging code, slowing down your code, and a plugin registering system. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to use decorators and to recognize how decorators are being used in all of the code you encounter on your Python journey. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. One of the things that I was wondering about with that, well, I guess two things. One is distributing to like the web would be another sort of platform. And I'm not sure if that's a, a goal. I just kind of see it kind of like marked up as like, oh, this is a direction that we're interested in. It's yes, it definitely is a direction we're interested in. And at one point, like at the point two or three years ago when we had the Android demo running, we actually did have a, a demo running of web as well. Uh, I I very much like I come from a Django background and I very much would like to see Toga being able to target the web as an application platform. And I, I definitely think that there is potential to be there. The 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 hiccup at the moment is the getting Python running in the browser. And again, much like I did with Android, we had a 
sort of working proof of concept demo for running Python in the browser worked for for demo purposes, but just not quite well enough to legitimately say, yeah, this is no problem, let's go. I want to go back and revisit that. I go, I, this is one of those, as soon as I find this infinite bucket of time with which I can experiment <laughs> with stuff, sure. the, the emergence of Asm in particular has opened all sorts of doors for what we could potentially be doing in the browser. We just need someone to have focused attention for you know a couple of months to just look at that problem and get it you know get it legitimately working as something that can be there. But once it's there, uh, like Toga does have scoped out there, uh, you know, a the idea of a of a Toga web backend that can take a definition of you know if you look you look at your modern single page app what you're basically saying is here is an app it's a window and in this at the top there's a menu bar and then there's a panel on the left hand side that has a tree that lets you navigate something that shows details on the right hand side nothing about what I said there was HTML or native widgets it's just a way of rendering a user interface to the user that just happens to be delivered via HTML and CSS and, and JavaScript. Yeah. That's exactly the same story as it is with a native widget toolkit on, on a desktop platform or on a, on, a, on a mobile phone. It's just that instead of talking about rendering it in single pixels with an API that's you know, draw box on screen, it's a render div with style border one pixel solid. So you know, there is a story for building GUIs in using the same API that we see on desktop platforms, but rendered in the browser as the delivery mechanism. Yeah, it's like another layer of translation, <laughs> which is interesting. It is, and I suppose that's like it, it's kind of a bugbear that I've that I've had about the web for a while. Is that we like you no know, one builds apps for desktop that involve rendering individual pixels on the screen anymore. Like you can get to a raw draw pixel on screen. Nobody does that ever. Because we have worked out that it's better to put an abstraction layer over the top, that is, draw button. And draw button gives you a button that has accessibility controls and re- like renders nicely when you click on it. And if you really want to go fancy, has little audio controls and is keyboard navigable and all the other stuff that goes around the outside of that. But on the web, we're still very much you know, hitting, hitting rocks with hammers where we are, we are building, we are drawing individual lines on the screen and everyone is reinventing the wheel when it comes to what a button looks like and what a pull down looks like. We haven't taken that step back and really said, I want to build a user interface on the web. I don't care how it's read. I don't care about the mechanics of how you draw those pixels on the screen. I want to tell you what I want my, my interface to look like and then have it, have the back end platform worry about that. So that's kind of, you know, definitely longer term pictures in terms of what where toga is looking and where we'd like to go and the fact that we can now legitimately say you know with wasm and whatnot that there is a path for getting python running in the browser it could be a you know this is potentially a renaissance for python on the web that we can we can legitimately say you can build your app in python deploy it on the web as an application and never actually have to learn a second language in 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 terms of css and javascript and html all those just keep it at the python level and put things on the web you used a term there that i'm not familiar with um i think it was wasm oh yeah sorry wasm is web assembly so okay what happened a couple of years ago because we've had sort of multiple generations of JavaScript uh, interpreters, people like we've had we've had Microsoft and Apple and and Firefox and Chrome and Google all fighting with each other to say they've got the fastest JavaScript interpreter. We've now got really really fast JavaScript interpreters, and someone sat down 
and worked out what is the f- what is the minimum subset of things that compiles really really fast and got like jits uh, you, you compiles internally in the in the JavaScript interpreter really really quickly. Okay, and they came up with this subset of ways you can trick the JavaScript interpreter to run things at almost machine native machine speed. And they call that ASMJS because it's essentially assembly language for the web. And then they kind of took the step back from that and said, okay, well, let's, instead of trying to write this JavaScript in this incredibly convoluted way that we could occasionally like stuff up and not end up with stuff that's, that's ASMJS compliant, let's see if we can work out a way to define in a, in an assembly language format, like in a, in like in a literal assembly language, hmm. the instructions that I want to run. And then let's get a C compiler to target that language. And so what we've now got is the ability essentially to compile C code that will run in the browser that isn't running natively. It's running as JavaScript, but the JavaScript gets, because the JavaScript interpreter is jitted uh, or is just in time compiled, Right. Okay. it runs really, really fast. And so you can do things like, there. I think it's, uh, oh God, I'm gonna figure, I can give you the URL, but it's like you, there is Quake 3 compiled for the web. And it is like literally, the Quake 3 source code run through a compiler, spat out as JavaScript, as a WebAssembly binary, that will run in your browser. It's a fully functioning 3D first-person shooter running inside your browser. Wow. Now, that's obviously the extreme version. Right. But if you can run a web, if you can run Quake in your browser, you can run a Python interpreter in your browser. Sure. Uh, and so there are, you know, there's a project called Pyodide, which is essentially, it is literally that. It is a, think of a Jupyter notebook, but without the server component. It is Python and NumPy and Matplotlib and SciPy running in your browser. And when you go and type in your new Python command, it doesn't send that command to the server and then come back again. It is running in the browser natively. And so that like WebAssembly is that I don't want to write JavaScript like I, without writing JavaScript. How do I get code to run in my browser? JavaScript is technically how it's running because it is... Like it is using the JavaScript interpreter, but you never write a line of JavaScript to make that happen. You're writing things in a binary format that the JavaScript interpreter understands effectively. And that then gives us this common runtime, uh, common runtime environment, because every browser's got JavaScript and JavaScript is incredibly portable. Yeah. If I compile that, going back to our original question, don't care whether it's 64-bit or 32-bit or an ARM machine, it's JavaScript and it runs as JavaScript and it'll run everywhere. And it will run fast everywhere because JavaScript jitting compilers are hideously optimized to do this this uh, this ASMJS subset. It's like the thing they keep bragging about with every revision of <laughs> iOS or Android or what have you is like you know what we is that our, our JavaScript interpreter is five percent faster on whatever monkey benchmark uh, benchmark we decided <laughs> to use. Exactly. Yeah. The other question I have is, and this is kind of goes back to my conversation with Armin, and I, I was you know trying to get an idea about version numbers and you know, flask sort of famously had a, a, a non 1.0 type of version number for many, many years. And then there was like suddenly a decision, well, okay, we're going to, we're 1.0 now, you know? And so I'm wondering if there's some of that zero versioning, uh, what's your thought process there with not only, uh, beware, but, but also like Toga and stuff. Yeah. So I, I am a believer that, Major version numbers are communicating something significant. I, I am not a believer in everything being zero dot something forever. My like in terms of Toga and the Beware tools specifically, they're all kind of broadly about version zero point three at the moment. Okay. And for me, that's saying it's not a complete toy, but 
it's also, you know, wear gloves. It's You're going to get caught on sharp edges. Mentally, my model is when I say Toga is version 1.0, that that is something you can rely on. That is that is a, a stable API that I'm not going to go and change or you know, the, the project is not going to change arbitrarily. If it does change, it's going to be for very good reasons and will provide backwards compatibility paths and all the rest of it. So like, I, I think version one communicates something significant about the maturity of the project. And that is like, we are targeting a version one no, I haven't got like it's going to be out next week, but we you know, nominally there is a version one in our future. And if I had to like stick a wet finger in the air and say what that is, it's it's essentially you could use this as a replacement for TK Inter. Okay. You know, here here is a web here is a not incredibly sophisticated but sophisticated enough toolkit that we are an adequate replacement for. And then you know version two is when you start making significant changes beyond that, or you know. The, the sort of gets more into that. The difference between version one and version two for me is not as significant as the difference between version zero and version one. That makes sense. Yeah. And so you were saying that uh, for Toga then? Uh, that, uh, Toga, but more broadly across the rest of the tools as well. Like They're all getting close. Briefcase at the moment is version 0.3 because I'm kind of semi-reserving the right to change things if I have to uh, because we just don't know. Like a lot of this stuff, you, you build a design, you build an API, and then you discover that, oh, crap, that didn't quite work like that, does it? Like that that actually gives us friction in places we don't need it. You know, I am willing to break things at the moment in the interest of maintaining a stable API or maintaining a good API versus a stable API. When it gets to version one, I won't call it version one until I know we've got this bedded in and we know that like the broad, like the, the basic structure we've got here is good. Yeah. I, I, would, I would estimate the briefcase is a lot closer to being version one than Toga is at the moment. Not that they're both that far off, but uh, but briefcase is a lot closer to being genuinely usable right now as a you know as a version one product. What is your day to day involvement in the project? Uh, so I I started the project. Good lord, was it six years ago now? Says he. This has been a, this has been a very uh, twenty 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 uh, no, June twenty twenty has been one hell of a year. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's been about six years since I originally started working on all this. I am I'm the founder and I'm sort of the uh, the principal maintainer. If there's a question, it's 50-50 chance. It's probably me who answers it on the mailing list or on the on the chat rooms or whatever. There are there is a team of people around it who you know swing in and out variously, uh, contributing when they've got time and when they've got got interests. Uh, Ashish in particular for the last six months has been doing a lot of work, but because he's been paid to work on it. It is not, however, my paid day job. Like this is this is not what I do. What I, I do have a small number of financial sponsors. We do get grants from the PSF and things like that occasionally, but. This is what I do in my spare time. It's not my paid day job. I would like it to be my paid day job, but just try to find a way to actually fund this sure. without like, oh, just go get VC. Yeah, okay. But then the VC is going to want something. So what are we going to have to sell? Like what what is what what part of our soul are we going to have to sell to make this? And I would rather this be good and and maintainable long-term without having to work out how we're going to monetize the community. Not that I'm opposed to making money. I just, I don't, like, making money is not my prime incentive here. It's building a thing that is useful. Yeah. And how do you monetize that in a way that doesn't introduce perverse incentives into the community where you're desperate, like, doing, having to do things like, you know, Mongo and Reddit did, Redis did, where they have things and then lock down parts of the community. And, like, I don't want to get into those games. I, I want this to be a community project that just happens to be financially sustainable. So yeah, my my day to day is like reviewing the stuff that comes in and, and patches, trying to respond to questions and and feedback as they as they come in, finding time on weekends to fix those problems when I can. 
but my time is limited. Yeah. And you know, every little bit of control contribution from the community is is fantastic and really, really, really uh, well welcome and gratefully accepted. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how would somebody get involved and help with the project? Roll up your sleeves and start start helping. Uh, <laughs> like we've got, so if you've got a bigwet.org, there is a contributions page we can walk you through. Like, gives you a, a broad. This is the directions you could go depending upon your skill set. The thing that seems to scare people off is that, like, oh, but I I'm only a beginner. Like, I'm only a, like only been programming for a couple of years. I couldn't possibly contribute to a project like this. That's like I get where that comes from, but honestly, this is one of those areas where nobody is an expert, and so yeah. having the interest to sit down and like genuinely learn how the Windows API works when it puts when about putting Windows widgets on the screen. If you use Windows on a day-to-day basis and you would like a really good Windows widget toolkit, guess what? We need your help. And I don't use Windows on a day-to-day basis. I want to support Windows a whole lot better, but I need someone like I I splitting me five ways is already five ways too many. Having someone come in and say, you know, yes, I'm going to take hold of the Windows platform and I'm going to make sure it absolutely sings and I'm going to do things that are you know, build widgets that feel like they're native and build APIs that are that look like they're native. There is a small leap that you need to get over in terms of how do I translate this Python API into this documentation that is written for C-sharp programmers, but it's not as big as you might think. Like the, the bridging APIs that exist are fairly straightforward. Like the method names are exactly the same. There is occasionally some type manipulation like you need to be very clear about whether it's a string or a byte string and that kind of manipulation but it's you know it's not seventh level dan black belt level stuff it is <laughs> you've got to pay attention and yeah, if you learned to program last week it's probably a little bit beyond you but if you've got a year or two under your belt i guess you could probably do it you've just got to be willing to do a bit of research in the background and like read up about what's going on so these are those uh, Rubicon kind of things you're talking about. Not even necessarily Rubicon, like just just at the level of like Windows. The biggest issue with Windows at the moment is making the tree widget fast, making the tree, like even making the tree widget work. Someone needs to go and look on the Microsoft page for the API for displaying a tree widget on the screen yeah. and convert that into a wrapper API that is compliant with Toga. Now, all the documentation is there. Like there is a wealth of documentation out there for how you build a Windows tree, you know, in a in in your .NET application. There isn't literal documentation for how to do it in Python, but the API is there and documented, and I can tell you how to map from Python to that API. So we just need someone to like do the research to work out how do I build that widget, and then map that and translate that into some actual Python code. In in some ways, you've already done several of the other widgets, so structurally, there's going to be a lot of similarity there. There is a lot of very similar stuff there, and it's literally trying to work out, okay, so we need to display an icon on the tree. Okay, how do I display an icon in a tree using the Windows.NET API? Let's go off and research and find that, and then translate that into you know the actual API calls that need to happen on Python. It sounds a lot more complicated than it actually is. Like the the implementation of so take button as a simple example, the implementation of button on any given platform is like thirty lines of code. It is not difficult code at all to understand. Now, button is a relatively straightforward widget, but if you can wrap your head around those thirty lines of code and they're not complicated thirty lines of code, it is more complicated, sure, but not hideously more complicated to make the same thing work for any other widget. 
Right. But there is just a lot of stuff that needs to be done, and it all needs to be done before we're at version 1.0. Right, okay. So yeah, if, if anybody wants to get involved, the biggest thing is to basically show up and keep showing up. The, the most fr- I, I understand entirely why it happens, but from a project maintainer's perspective, the most frustrating thing for me is that you have someone who turns up and says, yes, I'm really, really enthused, and you spend an hour explaining how something works, and they submit one small patch, and then they never come back again. Now, if it's me who's scaring people off, then I'm terribly, terribly sorry, and I'd like to know what it is that I'm doing wrong because it certainly isn't my intention to scare you off. But having people who show up and show up regularly means that you know that it's worthwhile spending the time and investment to make them better, to make to, to, to help them over time. And we have got, like, uh, uh, Olga Bulat is a, a, a woman based in Turkey who has been one of the big contributors to the Windows backend. She, by her own admission, is not an expert programmer. She's very good. She's a damn sight better than she thinks she is. But she just turns up and she did made some patches and said, yeah, okay, this probably needs to be a little bit better or maybe this thing over here needs to clean up a little bit. The patches she's producing are amazing. She's doing phenomenal work. And the Windows backend has gotten incredibly better as a result of that. And so that's what I would like to see other people doing is like I, if, if, you, if this is an endpoint where you would like to, like, you would like to see Python be able to do these things. Yeah. Get involved. Like, this is the perfect time. I am known to the world. Like, the reason that I have, like, the people know my name is because I was very, very, very lucky to be involved with Django before version one, way, way back, like, when there's only six months out of being, into being open sourced. And I got involved when there was so much low-hanging fruit that every contribution was a huge contribution. It's a lot harder to get involved with Django today. Like, not that the community is, is, isn't welcoming to newcomers or anything, but if there is something easy to be done, it's already been done. We are now into the weeds of obscure, you know, platform bugs and, and things like that, or features that are right. just complicated. It, it's mature. It's matured. Toga's not mature yet. There is a lot, like, there is just basic make the color show up on the button type bugs that need to be resolved. Yeah. I can't predict that Toga is going to be huge and is going to be big, but if it does, now, now if it does get there, now is the time to get involved because this is where it is easy to get involved. And you could, you know, find yourself in the same sort of situation that I am, where five, ten years later, you are a member of the core team of a project that is incredibly popular because it's letting people build user interfaces across mobile and web and desktop natively in Python. Yeah. Well, those are most of the questions I have, you know, regarding briefcase and the whole beware project in general. Are there things that that you wanted to talk about more specifically on top of the things that we've already kind of covered? Um, the only thing really is is that kind of set the the eternal open source funding thing is that I am I've been around open source for a long time. I've been around the Django project for what is it, thirteen years or something at this point, fourteen years trying to work out how to fund open source, how to get companies to open their their wallets, how to find financially viable models for open source is something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah. And we just don't have answers for. And in particular for like even Django has difficulty finding funding to maintain the Django fellows. And in the case of something like Toga, like Toga does not have someone using it in production for a huge production app. So there's not an obvious like it, and no one will until it is mature. Right. So how do we get from here to there? Like if we agree, if 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 you happen to agree that having Python on mobile and having Python being able to develop front-end web stuff is valuable, great. We all agree it's important. It doesn't get done unless there is money to pay for someone's development time. 
because I'm here to tell you developing it on the weekends is exhausting work. Yeah. And it doesn't happen quickly if it's being done on weekends. And we've seen multiple versions of this in the Python community. Like Beware has seen it. We, we, we got a grant from the PSF. Six months later, we have a fully functioning Android implementation. That would not have happened without a grant from the PSF. PyPI lived in this development hell for years, and they got a grant from the Mozilla uh, Grants Wing. And six months later, there was a, a finished version of PyPI that is there and is robust. Money makes things happen. We need to work out how to get that money into our community, into the things. And I, I, okay, if it's not Tiger, that's fine. But we need the injection of money into the, the, the tools that we are using, into our ecosystem, so that we are not always playing catch up for the, the things that are changing, the, the developments in the ecosystem that we're seeing, so that we are doing our research and development to make sure that Python maintains and continues to be a useful platform into the future. And at the simplest level, it's open your wallet and donate to the PSF because, you know, they are in a position to judge that sort of stuff. Or if you've got, you know, particular pressures like Beware where you do believe in their message, give them money even though you're not using them because it does make a huge difference. Like the day that I can give up my day job and and actually go and, you know, work on Beware full-time, and ideally not just work on full-time by myself but with, you know, one or two other people so that I'm not just echoing around in my own head, like that's going to be, that's the point at which the project is going to start not just be, hey, look, I put out a little minor bug fix on the weekend. It's, hey, this week we delivered a new feature Yeah. because I was 40, 40 hours on this project, not you know two hours on the weekend whilst making sure my kids were fed. I wonder about that model that a lot of authors have. And I, I know this is probably smaller scale, um, like Kickstarter kind of things and so forth. I, I don't know how well that works for um, open source projects also uh so kickstarter is a it is a model that always gets suggested but it misses two important factors the first off is that it is once-off income so like okay yeah I, let, let's do a kickstarter to get toga to version 1.0 you know whatever whatever amount of money that is that that happens to be i'll i'll go estimate it and put up a kickstarter it is once-off money and you know it funds six months of development or you know three months six months 12 months of development how much time it is and then what right then it's not being maintained. That's not a good situation to be in. And the other thing is that because of that, the contracting, like if you are a contractor, contractors charge more than week-to-week employees because a contractor needs to hedge for the fact that next month they're not employed. Right. So they will charge, you know, twice, three times what their normal, like actual employed hourly rate is just so that they've got that safety margin. If you are in an environment where there is already not enough money, you don't want the person that you're paying to be charging you three times the rate because you're going to get one-third the amount of money or one-third one, one third the amount of work done for the amount, amount, the amount of work that's actually being done, Right. if that makes sense. So no, it totally does. I get the appeal of Kickstarter and that, like, it's, yes, let's bring the community together. But what we really need is Kickstarter for ongoing funding right like, kick, like kickstarter patreon for this, or, you know, or, it, uh, yeah patreon is closer to that model but like not just patreon like i i do have people who pay month by month subscriptions and i'm incredibly grateful for it but like what do they like they they get everything they're getting now what do i withhold that you don't get right. until i've got enough for a living wage for me or enough for a living wage for one other person and so on 
yeah, sort of it's that when I don't have something to hold over you, when I can't withhold something, there is <laughs> right. there is and a models. Yeah, like Kickstarter, you don't get it unless everyone pitches in. Yeah. What do you withhold if it's ongoing maintenance or it's on it's an ongoing subscription? And that's like there is something here that we haven't gotten. And like I've I've uh, there's a, a book written by a woman named Eleanor Ostrom that, that gets cited a lot. Uh, she her, her work she actually won the Nobel Prize for Economics for this work she did about uh, about sustainable ecosystems and the commons or sustainable uh, economic commons. And one of the things that is a key fact that she identifies is that you need to be able to exclude access to the resource. If you've got like a, a, a fishing a fishing ground or a forest or grazing lands or something like that, the way you maintain it is that you basically have to have a set of rules for how you can use it. And if you don't adhere to the rules, you can't use it. And one of the rules is that you need to be contributing back, either with money or with resources or with something, but you need to be giving back to be able to use it in the first place. Yeah. And that is sort of an anathema to the open source ecosystem because the open source ecosystem is very much either, I just, you know, it's out there and everyone can use it and there's no restrictions or the nuclear option of its GPL and you can't use it unless you are also giving away all of your stuff, which is in the, like, in the capitalist world we're in just is not a viable option for most, for, for the vast majority of, of projects. So anyway, there is, there is a, there, that is, I am, the, the real takeaway there is that I am open to anyone who wants to have that discussion or anyone who has got ideas about how to restructure or reframe the problem to enable R&D work and long-term maintenance work in open source ecosystems. So if anyone's got any ideas, please get in touch because I'd love to hear them. Yeah. It's definitely something I've wanted to, I've thought about, you know, not only the the idea of people coming in and helping contribute time and obviously all the things that we were speaking about before with that, the ideas of building up your resume and, and, getting that sort of experience and, and not being afraid to say, you know, you are a good enough a developer, but you need to show up. <laughs> I yeah. think are super important yeah. concepts. So. Yeah. And I, the, I, I am also very, very aware that like I, I am a white Anglo male. I have the privilege of being able to do this stuff in my spare time. And that, that is not a privilege that is available to everybody. So I, I, the building out your resume thing is great, but you've actually got to have the spare time in the first place. So like, I get that that is a problem, but when, that is the only resource. It's like volunteered resources, the only resource we have available to us. We've got to make sure we're making the most of it. Yeah. I, I don't want to waste anybody's time if they're trying to contribute to, to, to Beware as a project. And the best way to make sure that there's not a waste of time is to know that there is a two-way commitment. I am willing to give the other end of that two-way commitment, but I need, like, the what we need is to people is for people who show up to make that the other side of that two-way commitment, a, a commitment to be involved long-term. One other thing that you mentioned early on in your talk was one of the ideas of uh, the Python package itself, since it is a, a running you know, instance of Python, that there is maybe some work happening to tune the Python package to be potentially smaller. Uh, yeah, work going on. I don't know. Like there is a, it's a weird. It gets it gets very very weird weird and political very quickly because there are so many people using Python in so many different ways. Uh, so like the the idea like Python has always talked about itself being batteries included, which is great. Except that to borrow a phrase from uh, Amber Brown, uh, some of those batteries are leaking. <laughs> okay. There are batteries in like there is a library called audio uh, 
audio audio p which is a very very specific unix audio integration library that is in the python standard library toml is not toml is used by the packaging ecosystem why is why is those two, why are those two things around the way they are okay why can't audio audio p be pulled out and made something on pypi and yeah there is a there is a bigger discussion that needs to go on there because there is a certain like there is in in education for example one of the benefits of Python being batteries included is that you can in, you can have a sysadmin install Python and you can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, the users don't need to install additional code to make things work. Whereas the Node ecosystem is like you've got to install the universe before anything works. That kind of works because it's in the browser. But you know the the Python ecosystem one of its one of its value propositions is that everything is there to start with, and so stripping things out is politically complicated. But in a mobile development ecosystem, you want things to be as small as possible. So there's like there is the thing that runs Python, and there is the standard library, ninety five percent of which I'm not using because I'm building a, a you know a calculator app. I don't care about having you know email parsing libraries if all I'm doing is you know adding two numbers and converting Fahrenheit to Celsius. So sure. there there is definitely something that needs to be done there. There there isn't an active project to work anyone working on it. It is sort of a a thing a lot of people have been speaking about, but it's sort of almost a third rail of every time someone mentions it, it goes off. It goes it goes the the, the conversation rattles very quickly and people walk away. The one of the one of the best options that I'm actually I, I'm, I'm possibly converging on myself is tree shaking. Like Python doesn't have a good tree shaking solution at the moment, which is the idea that you here is here is the entire body of code. It's all kind of connected together like branches. Grab the base of the tree, shake it. Everything that falls off isn't connected to the code that's actually running. Right. And then pick that up and take the stuff that isn't connected. You can throw that away, and nothing will affect the way your code's running. So. That I think may actually be a, a, a quite a viable solution, and it's really no, not not trivial, but relatively easy to work out. Now, do I import the email library anywhere in my project? No. Right. Okay, delete the email library. Yeah. So that sort of tree shaking approach, and even going smaller scale than that, you know, inside the email library, I'm only using one function of the email library. Let's keep that and throw away all the other code. Right. Okay. That is harder because you've then got to work out all the you know cross dependencies between functions and stuff like that. But it is a solvable problem. Just you know, a difficult solvable problem. Yeah, totally makes sense. So I have a couple of questions that I ask, sort of as like weekly questions. Sure. The first one is, what's something that you're currently excited about in the world of Python? It could be a you know a package, a, a book, an event. So more broadly, like Wasm itself, we, we sort of did actually cover this one earlier, but Wasm is one that I am very excited about. Yeah. I am I am old enough that I remember parts of computing history, and so Wasm is kind of vaguely amusing to me at one level um so when i was way back (laughs) the when i was just getting into university java was the hotness java was where it was at because java was this new programming language and it was object oriented which was really cool and it was right once run everywhere and you had this language and it would run on unix and it would run on windows and it would run on it would run everywhere yeah and this was going to solve the universe's problems because everyone was going to change all of their code to run in Java, and then the code would run everywhere. And nobody ever stepped back to say, that's a stupid idea, because nobody's ever going to translate this 1970s COBOL code to run in, like, into a completely different programming paradigm so that it runs cross-platform. 
they focused so like there, there is they, the reason it was cross-platform is because they had this virtual machine and everything worked for this virtual machine but they so tightly coupled java the programming language to the virtual machine that the two were indistinguishable and at the same time this web browser thing started to pop up and the web browser needed to have a scripting language and the marketing department at netscape said well java's cross-platform so we need to call this scripting language java something uh and so they came up with javascript not because it has anything to do with Java, but because it's right. cross-platform and enterprise-ready, you know, marketing term. What we've gotten to is that Java, no one, like, yeah, Java's not going anywhere, but it's it's the COBOL of today. It's the thing that everyone wrote in the 1990s that we are now, unfortunately, maintaining. Yeah. JavaScript, however, is everywhere. And it's everywhere because it's in the browser, and the browser is so damn important as a platform that everyone has a browser, everyone has a JavaScript interpreter. Right, it's on all your devices. Yeah, and it's and they've optimized that JavaScript interpreter and they've optimized everything about it and they've developed Wasm. Wasm actually looks like it might be a better way of delivering on that right once run everywhere platform than Java ever was. Because Wasm standardizes the thing that is complicated, the the binary interchange format. If you can compile and target Wasm my C code, your Python code, someone else's, you know, Erlang code can all interchange because we have established a common binary format in WASM. Hmm. And that is really powerful. That That is a really interesting idea and one that has a whole lot of potential if we can finesse the details. And I definitely want to make sure that Python is on that train, like is 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 able to play in that world because it is like that is the thing that genuinely makes things cross-platform. And we get and, and and you know the great irony in all is that we get there not by paying attention to JavaScript the language, but by completely ignoring JavaScript and just using its runtime and exploiting the fact that it's got a common runtime that's everywhere. So we are going to get right once run everywhere by using a language that borrowed the name for marketing purposes <laughs> right. in a runtime where we're going to ignore the language that actually borrowed the runtime for, for marketing purposes or borrowed the name oh, for marketing no. purposes. So, <laughs> that sounds like a normal operation of things. Oh, yeah. Actually. yeah. <laughs> where would you, if you were going to suggest like one resource or one place somebody could start to learn a little bit about WebAssembly, do you have a good place that you'd send somebody? Uh, and not really. Like that is kind of the biggest issue that we've got at the moment is that like the getting it it is very much about like reading assembly code manuals. It it hasn't been documented well yet from a user's perspective. Okay. And 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 scripten, which is hard enough to say, let alone use, is is kind of the the C compiler, the compiler toolchain part that targets it. And their tutorials aren't too bad as long as you understand C to start with. Uh, for a completely green, like I, I'm just learning to program. I know Python, but I've never compiled C before. It's probably not that accessible. But like that is kind of the big gap at the moment. Is like how do you make Wasm actually usable for people? Yeah, and I don't know that we've kind of got there yet. Hmm. Okay, well, that's cool. I, that sounds super exciting. The, I mean, the potential of it is it sounds really cool, especially for you know again the, the way that Python is so abstracted from it would allow you to still be able to do all these other things in the the distribution and yeah and like potentially you know here is this great javascript library i'm just going to invoke it from my python code which i can now do because we both agree on the runtime interchange like we actually are in a position to be able to do that kind of thing now 
Yeah, cool. This one's kind of related to that. What's what are you interested in learning next? Something that has come across my my, my desk a couple of times now, and I really do need to sit down and spend some time on it, is a, a project called Pylance, which is an extension to uh, to VS Code that looks incredible. Like it's a, it's one of those code completion extension pieces yeah. that looks incredibly interesting. I need to find some time to actually sit down and play with it, like in anger. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So. That's that's kind of on my list of, uh, with, with all that spare time that I have just sitting around doing nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's high on my list of stuff I want to look at and learn. I want to learn more about. Cool. That would be my that would be my pick at the moment. Wondering if there's someone I can bring in from Pylance to to talk about it, find out who's involved in that. <laughs> I'd watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me. No, oh, thank you for having me. Again, I want to thank Russell Keith McGee for being my guest this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.